Welcome to Who's That Girl, a new girl podcast. I'm Kelly. And I'm Kritika. And today we'll be discussing Season 1, Episode 13, Valentine's Day. This episode originally aired on February 14th, 2012, which is amazing that it's actually named Valentine's Day and aired on Valentine's Day. And it was written by Leslie Wake and directed by Tucker Gates. Leslie Wake created Perfect Harmony recently, which is a show that I actually love. So I was really excited to see that. And she also wrote another episode of New Girl and worked on Life in Pieces for a couple episodes. And the director, Tucker Gates, directed a couple different episodes of Homeland, Ray Donovan, and Bates Motel, which is obviously a completely different genre than New Girl, but he had only done one episode of New Girl. So this episode, it's Valentine's Day, and Nick is planning a classic Valentine's Day date with Julia. Winston is starting to think about what he thinks is a budding romance with Shelby, and Jess is looking for a one-night stand with the help of Schmidt and Cece. But at the end of the night, no one really got what they were looking for. So let's start with Winston and Shelby. I thought it was hilarious that when they were at that elevator scene that he kept her name typed as Shreddy for, I think he said like two years because he was too drunk to type Shelby. Right? I think I've heard people actually say that before where people get into people's phones in a certain way. Like they don't go back and change it later, which... If this is a girl you were like literally sleeping with and hooking up with multiple times, even if you didn't really care for her, wouldn't you want to go back and change that? Even currently, like now, like what were you doing, Winston? I don't know. It just, that was a little funny. But then, you know, Schmidt is trying to tell Winston, you know, you can't go on a first date on Valentine's Day. And Winston's trying to say, oh, it's not a first date. You know, we're just like catching up or hanging out. But Schmidt relates that to the movie, It's Complicated. And he goes, oh, but you know, in six months, you're going to... um you're going to have like a newborn baby to sleep with when you go out with someone for the first time on Valentine's Day. And you're just like, Schmidt, like it takes longer to make a baby than that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he was at the baby shower. I know he didn't do the research for that, but I think he <laughs> knows it takes nine months, right? Mm, I mean, he didn't know what, what was he? he? He didn't know what like placenta was, right? So I don't know, or afterbirth. He didn't know what afterbirth was. So I don't know that I would put it past him to know how long it takes for a baby to come all the way out of the the person. Yeah, I mean, there's probably a long list of things that Schmidt doesn't know. But what I really was wondering about in that scene was, you know, they both have like bags as they're going somewhere. So I thought this was like earlier in the day or something and Schmidt was going to work because he had the suit on and he had like a briefcase kind of messenger bag. But then Winston also had this bag and I feel like he had a tennis racket sticking out of it or some sort of racket. And I was just like, are you going to like work out or something? But then that's the same outfit he shows up at Shelby's at. I saw that too. And then I always get, I think, I feel like even back to that, like first episode, I get kind of thrown with the timelines of what these people are doing in their days because, you know, it's like we have the beginning and the morning scene where everyone's like, oh, it's Valentine's Day. Let's get like, you know, what are we going to do tonight? And then suddenly you see the evening and you see what they're doing that night. And so this is another one of those episodes. And I'm with you. I was a little confused. He definitely seemed like, He was all dressed, ready to go to Shelby's, and he showed up at Shelby's like in the next scene wearing exactly what he had on, but with no tennis racket bag. Yeah, I saw a bag. I definitely didn't see a racket. And so, I mean, I get that they can't show us like everything that happens in a day. It's a 22-minute show. But when they wear the same clothes to like everything that they're doing, it's really hard to decipher how much time has passed. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you there. But he gets Winston gets to the evening with Shelby and finds out that it's not just with Shelby, it's with the girls. And they were having kind of, I mean, kind of having a gallant Galentine's Day before Galentine's Day was even really a thing, I think. And 
he is not really crashing it because he was invited, but you know, he shows up and <laughs> I at least thought it was a little funny too. Winston walks in and she's like, he looks like a player. And I'm just like, that was a weird thing to say. Like, well, he's not a sports player. He's just wearing sweats. And you mean he looks like someone who's like a womanizer, but no, he doesn't. Then you put your glasses on. I just thought that little scene and like, I didn't really know what they were trying to convey there. It was really weird. Yeah, I think definitely not maybe womanizer because it has probably a more negative connotation today than it did in 2011 because I think or more maybe more socially acceptable in 2011 because it meant the same thing but I think that people threw it around a lot more and it wasn't necessarily a bad thing to be a player or like especially for men calling each other players so I think it was just meant to be like a dig at Winston of like oh, you you looked hot kind of thing and you look like a guy who had a lot of game to reference previous episodes. But then when she put her glasses on, she was like, oh, nope, never mind. So yeah, it almost makes me wonder, it almost makes me wonder if maybe that, maybe Shelby before Winston got there, I mean, it would make sense if Shelby was talking to her friends and being like, oh my gosh, this is the same guy from two years ago and he's really dumb. And he like stood me up, which we find out later on Valentine's Day. And so it would make sense to me if maybe she was like, talking Winston down, but then he shows up. And so that girl, her friend was trying to be like, or was trying to make Winston feel bad in a way. Yeah, I think that could be it. I think that's part of it. I think more than talking him down though, I think maybe she was like talking him up as a player, like as someone who like really was someone who like slept around all the time and didn't really like form meaningful relationships. But then come to find out that he doesn't maybe like in quotes, look like a player when she has her glasses on. But, you know, to Winston's credit, he really does embrace this like non-date that's there. He, you know, he has a little bit of hesitation when he's talking to Nick about it, but he doesn't, he, or rather he realizes that he wants to be with Shelby. And so he takes the plunge and is like, nope, you're going to have a girl's night. I'm going to just, you know, jump right on in. Yeah. No, I thought that was really big of Winston. And also he just, he, went with the flow and like totally just hung with the, with the women, you know, and, and didn't make a thing of it. He even made his grandmother's sangria, which I was like, okay, you brought a bottle of wine. And I just, I guess she had all the ingredients you needed. And usually sangria, you like leave sitting for a couple hours to like really make it a sangria, but Winston whipped it right up. So (laughs) maybe his grandmother's, his grandmother's recipe is a really, a really unique one that it, it comes together pretty quickly. But I thought that was just really sweet that he's just trying to bond with them all and like make friends with her friends and really show Shelby that he kind of cares. And he's even at the end giving advice to his, to the one friend who goes, Oh, you don't want a man who has fancier underpants than you. (laughs) I just, that line was like, okay, Winston, like, thank you. I'm glad you have this knowledge of what women need. I thought he had a good job of bonding with them in a way that really made them feel safe because, you know, a lot of times when girl groups like this are engaging in like girl talk or whatever, having a guy there, like Tia was obviously initially hesitant to have anyone there. And so it really did like sit well with us and also with Shelby that he, you know, eased into her life and meshed. And obviously, like she says at the end, she knew that he had um, stood her up on Valentine's Day 2008, which is about four years now before this show is airing. And so, you know, it's interesting to watch her kind of like give Winston that second chance and really like Winston earning it because I feel like we've seen 
not a lot of Winston in all these episodes so far, but what we have seen of him, he's been really growing as a person. Yeah, I think so. And that's where, I, I don't know, I'm I'm with you and like, I'm excited to see potentially more of Winston in the show. There's been some times too where Winston has been my favorite character in some of the episodes and it's been times when he's just not even like super featured. And I, and I know that I really like Winston's character and I know in the future, I know that I really like Winston as well. And so I'm excited to potentially see some more and more as the season continues. So yeah, it was at least fun to see a little bit of growth from Winston um, with Shelby and how that ended up for him that evening. I think he's the only one, honestly, in this episode that had a good end of the Valentine's Day night, you know, (laughs) or one that wrapped up pretty well. Yeah, one that it didn't wrap up well for was really Nick and Julia. They had started off on such a high note, you know, on the in the kitchen being all lovey-dovey, which I was just sitting here going, is this the same Nick Miller we've been watching for 12 episodes so far? How are you so into this? Like, it wasn't that long ago that you couldn't call this a relationship. Yeah. I mean, even last episode, it was, they were still kind of figuring out kinks and still trying to determine who they were. And they were being all weird where Nick's like, oh yeah, these are my, my parent sheets from 40 years ago. And you're just like, okay, that's, you're being cute. You're being quirky, but you're not being lovey-dovey, like let's hold hands at the breakfast table and whisper in each other's ear and like, see what's up and make other people feel like, oh wow, look at all that PDA, you know? So I, I'm on the, I'm on your same page where I'm just like, no, who's this Nick and Julia? Like this is, and especially Nick, the whole episode in some way, when like all of the things they're trying to do to have this like really like traditional, real Valentine's day date, I was like, this is kind of fun. I like Nick in this, like Nick's really cute, but then I'm with you that I'm like, this isn't Nick Miller. Like (laughs) who, who is this Nick trying to impress Julia? Yeah, I agree. He's he's been really strange throughout all this. And like, you know, when he gets to the law office to start their date, he we get to meet another character in Julia's life, at least Cliff, her unpaid intern. And it was wonderful watching Nick and Cliff get to like bond a little bit. But Cliff himself was like a little bit problematic for me. Yeah, he I don't know. It was embarrassing to see Cliff just start going off about his boss when he didn't even know who Nick was. Like he thought he was a bike messenger and Nick's like, yep, I'm not a bike messenger. And Cliff's just going on and on about like Julia and like, oh yeah, like I'd actually hit that. Like that's fine. And finally Julia comes in and she's just like, yeah, that's my boyfriend. And his face is just like, oh. (laughs) And you know, it doesn't even phase like their relationship as it continues for this little episode. Like, you know, he keeps bonding with Cliff because Julia is so busy with Valentine's Day being on a work day and her having to do so much more work. And she just, you know, every time they meet up, she's like, I have a little bit more work. And I think we all kind of know someone like that that's like continuing to keep working even when you have other things to do. And also it's a difficult spot to be in. It's important, I feel, to be realistic with yourself and know what your priorities are. And like if you know it's Valentine's Day and you really have so much work to do, be realistic with your partner or whoever you're going out with on Valentine's Day or whatever day it is and let them know like, hey, don't make reservations because I'm not probably going to be done with work at any time that is going to be regular to eat dinner, you know? And one of the lines she actually said was, oh, just 40 to 50 more minutes. And I'm like, no, no, that's not a regular amount. That was after she had already told them to wait like an hour before she would be ready. And he had already moved the dinner reservations. And I'm just like, I don't know. So as much as they were cute lovey-dovey in the beginning of this episode, to me, like, 
it was not like this was not okay. Like I just felt really bad for Nick in this. And like, like you said, like it was cute to kind of see like Nick and Cliff bonding and like having that moment together and learning a little bit more of Nick through that. But for Julia, I was just like, you're not being really great right now. Like if you guys set this up, don't flake out. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a tough situation to be in because if you're in a situation like that, it's it's difficult to figure out where to or how to prioritize, I guess. I mean, like, yes, communication is open and honest is important, but sometimes you don't know some of that stuff ahead of time. And she was very clear that she does need more time. I think, you know, it would have been – if they make it to another, like, big date like this, I think they both know what they would expect going into it. And I think that's what's important because I agree, like – Julia wasn't in the right in this situation, but at least she's with someone who's actually really understanding. Like, I never felt annoyance from Nick, which is what I would have expected in this kind of a show. Someone to be like, I don't want to be here. Why are you taking so long being like impatient about it? And he just kept going with it. Like, he opened the champagne, and if he couldn't share it with Julia, he shared it with Cliff. And he ends up bonding with Cliff and almost like, getting Cliff to quit without meaning to just by telling him his own life story, which Julia didn't really appreciate, but I think she understood where it was coming from, that it wasn't like Nick trying to sabotage her. Yeah. Well, in that story, oh my gosh, Nick, Nick, we continue, we continue. I feel like on so many levels to get so much depth and information out of Nick, even when he's like in little moments like these, because not only are we like, seeing I mean he Nick kind of said he was in a romantic mood so that's why he was doing maybe some of the bonding with Cliff and like having the champagne with Cliff but then in a way like it made me think like maybe Nick thinks that he's like it's almost like he's trying to make up for Caroline in a way on like past Valentine's Day because they're trying to do this like official let's go out for a dinner and like make it like the real quote Valentine's Day experience but then he's also sharing not only like that was part of the reason he dropped out of law school is because like he said he broke like his heart was broken, presumably because of Caroline. And then he also like was in a Mexican cockfight, but as a human, a human fighting a chicken. And you're just like, what choices have we made in this world, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I think he at least seems to have gotten his life kind of together in the personal front because we've seen in episodes past where like, you know, Paul was like, oh, this is a time to figure out your life in your 20s. And Nick kind of seemed to resent that he had any life to figure out. But this is the most stable I've seen Nick Miller so far because he is in a relationship with what I'd consider is probably an equal. With Caroline, I feel like there's so much history there that like you said, he's getting his heart broken or he got his heart broken while in law school. And while that's an incredibly tough thing, like to leave law school because you got your heart broken is – kind of extreme to begin with. And also a lot of this timeline is really weird because if he left in law school, unless he took time off between undergrad and law school, then, you know, how long has he and Nick and Caroline been broken up? Like, are they like on and off again? Or like, I don't really understand the timeline of it for sure. Yeah, no, I'm with you. The timeline seems real funny especially I, I think on and off again would make the most sense with Caroline I mean and in, in previous episodes they allude to them like living together and then he they broke up so that's when Nick moved into the the loft and you're just like okay is that when you know when did all this law school was that recently that you dropped out or is it 
you know, there's just a lot of details that I feel like we're putting some puzzle pieces together, but we still have some holes on like how this all played out. But I actually kind of coming back to like Nick and if he's in a more stable spot to me, he's actually not like, I feel like part of the reason he wasn't annoyed or trying to like leave on this evening until it was finally the end when, you know, Julia's like, okay, go home is he maybe feels that he's still like not equals with Julia because he tends a bar. He dropped out of law school. He doesn't, um, like he doesn't want to work for anybody, but then he feels like, okay, I've given up and now I'm working for somebody that, and I'm not my own boss essentially. And Julia is this like lawyer. She's working all the time. She has this in a way you would think success, you know, to do all this job. And Nick's just trying to be like supportive and trying to feel like he's needed, but he's kind of not needed by her in the way that maybe he needs her. I don't know. I feel like I could go in on this a lot more, but I'm just like, Nick, Nick is still to me, insecure about his life choices, about the fact that he doesn't, you know, he's not doing the type of job he wanted to do and be his own boss. He's not getting the Valentine's Day that he wanted, but then he is just sticking around. I don't know. I feel like there's still a lot to unpack with Nick. I think there's more to come. I think where I said stable, I meant mostly on his personal life. And I think you made some valid points on that as well, why he wouldn't be. But to me, like not getting annoyed isn't like oh, your time is worth more than mine because I don't think Nick Miller thinks that. I think it's more of like being able to have this conversation with Cliff. I feel like he's accepting his life for what it is and knowing what choices he made were wrong. And while he may not have fixed his life yet, I don't think when he was talking to Paul in the car, he felt like he had made any wrong choices. Like, I think it takes being in a semi-successful, happy relationship for him to have had the clarity to kind of review the rest of his life. So I don't think he's like necessarily stable on the work front or any of the other pieces. But I think personally, like I feel like just even like we were saying, he's so lovey-dovey. Like I don't think that lovey-dovey is coming from insecurity, but actually coming from a place of security. That makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I could see that. And I and I could, I guess it's too, it's like, if this is really, because I think, remember, in the past, like, he was ha- trying to have his first hookup since Caroline, in a way. And this is really his first relationship since Caroline that we understand. Again, with the timeline, though, it, I'm not really sure how that all plays out. But if this is his first relationship sin- since Caroline, maybe that's part of it as well, is that he's actually feeling excited and happy about that. And, and, and he's at least committed to trying to make it work with Julia. So... That I can see. At the same time, though, I feel this whole episode, Nick was sweet and nice and doing what he could on the Valentine's Day, and Julia was just not reciprocating. And to me, and all the rockiness in the past with their relationship, I was... I'm kind of ready for Julia to go. <laughs> like, that's my opinion. I'm I'm kind of... A, I mean, I really like Lizzie Kaplan. I'm happy she's been... was in the show. It has been in the show, but I'm ready for Nick to go to the next thing. <laughs> I really like Nick and Jess together, so I would love to see that happen on this show because I think the characters have such chemistry in every scene we've ever seen them in. But I like Julia for him. I would say that I kind of disagree with the with the being reciprocated because she pulls out the heart box or she pulls out the antenna, and I think it would be out of character for Julia to drop work and go just from like even episode eleven, Jess and Julia. Like we know that that's her personality type I think is the best way to say it so I think it'd be out of character for her to have just been like oh I have work to do but it's okay we'll just do it later so I think that doesn't make her less reciprocating but I think her love languages might be different than 
you know, being very outwardly showy or maybe words of affirmation aren't her love language. But yeah, I could see that. Julia could be an okay influence, I guess. Sure. (laughs) I mean, if you convince me, I guess I'll see it. I mean, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be mad if Julia stuck around and Nick was happy about it. I just, I wish, um, I think I'm ready to see him with Jess as well. So we'll see how that goes. But lastly, in this episode, uh, we have Jess and her sidekicks, if you will, Schmidt and Cece, helping her get a one night stand uh, because she's feeling twirly. And I loved this phrase. I loved her her coining of it. She had the dirty twirls and she she needed to explore what kind of one night sex, if you will, is what she called it, could happen on Valentine's Day. Everything about this is so just. I mean, like Cece sitting there trying to kind of tell her that maybe she shouldn't do this. She's a little bit more emotionally attached. And she gives the example of basically she would have an emotional attachment to a shoe like sitting on the side of the road. And Jess's reaction is priceless because it's like, oh, one shoe? That's so sad. And I'm just like, Jess – I appreciate everything about you and this is entirely you. And you know what? If you need to pack a full overnight bag for this, you do you, Jess. I love Jess in this. She was so cute. You do you. But then also, like you said, like pack that overnight bag. She she was so adorable explaining to CZ like, oh, I have my t-shirts, my socks, my sewing kit, my stain remover. Um, I just have to say I've never had a one night stand, but then I am – positive I would do exactly what Jess would do in this episode an overnight bag I'm like overly prepared to a fault and so I'm like yes she thought of everything have her overnight bag I'm like add the contact solution like get everything you need ready to go in the car but then she like didn't drive herself also she like made a whole point to pack this overnight bag and I don't think I saw her carrying this bag at any point but she did like have her box of condoms at one point and you're just like So she did have her bag because that's how she pulled out the condoms from, right? Like that's at the bar. She had the bag. But yeah, I think Kelly, you are Jess. I mean, I think we've gone through a couple of podcasts now and you're like, this is what I would do. And I'm like, hi, Jess. Welcome to the podcast. Right. And and I feel like there's moments of Jess that like, you know, I don't want to say that I'm like, but then I'm like, yeah, I think I am. (laughs) Just, yeah, I would do that. Okay. I mean, she's from Oregon. You're from Oregon. Yeah. And and she met someone from Oregon in this episode. And she, I will say, us Oregonians, even though I'm from, I'm only recently in Oregon, but us Oregonians, like when we meet others, we're like, oh my gosh, hey, what's up? We're from Oregon. You're from Oregon? What part? You know, I'm sure that's a lot of people from the same place, but especially in Oregon, I've, I've noticed that. I would say that for Texans, it's more about the city than the state because the state is so big that you could be from El Paso or you could be from like San Antonio and it's completely different. But what I thought was hilarious during this is both Schmidt and Cece were like, no, you can't hook up with him now. You've had an emotional bond. And I was like, being from the same state is an emotional bond. But now hearing you talk about it, maybe it is different for people from Oregon. I wouldn't, I mean, I think you make a good point that I don't think it's a true, like a real emotional bond. It's not like you're have some similar life experience. You've just lived in the same state, you know? So that's maybe a little bit of a stretch for Schmidt and Cece to say that. But I think they were really trying to just protect her because knowing Jess, like the, like you said, the, the line where she's talking about the single shoe on the side of the road, 
I think for Jess, that was enough of an emotional bond that it, it was enough. She was going to be bonded. She was going to want to like, you know, have have more connected intimacy with this person the way Schmidt described. But also she like waves by so adorably. But like, why is she just waving by from across the bar? That was really, really ridiculous. He had no idea what was going on. No, at he all. didn't. <laughs> And honestly, I think like every person she meets that night is kind of the same way. Like they have no idea what's going on because she tries to do this like move where she takes someone's cherry, but then like ends up digging it out with her finger and then chokes on it, which is already weird. But first of all, the guy is like not helping her. And where are Schmidt and Cece? They're just like rolling their eyes like or like sighing off in the corner. And I'm like, your friend is choking. Where are you? I mean, she was still coughing. It was going to be okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm with you. If I am coughing, please, please come save me. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> it's also just like that whole scene was so unhygienic, like just sticking your hand into someone else's drink. And then someone obviously does come save her. But then like you look in the background and the guy is just like going about his business. Like, I don't care that some girl just like stuck her hand into my drink. I did think that was a little funny is that like the other guy shows up, Oliver, who we know, you know, shows up to be like, oh my gosh, woman, are you okay? And then you see the guy that she took his cherry behind him and he he was oblivious, you know, like it didn't like nothing just happened to him. No woman just stuck her hand in your drink and it's doesn't matter. So I'm, it was really ridiculous. I'm with you there. And then like in the background of all this, Cece and Schmidt are like, evaluating Jess's prospects and then they switch to Schmidt's prospects which he said he doesn't like to go out on Valentine's Day but I guess once he's already out he doesn't mind hooking up with someone yeah I don't know and he he did seem like he was gonna try a little too hard to kind of get with the redhead or whatnot the one across the bar that he's like oh no it's a thing I have a process where I look and then I do something else and I'm like how is not even being near that woman or go getting up and going to talk with her. How is your process going to lure her into you? Like, I don't know. Schmidt, Schmidt, I think thinks a little too highly of himself sometimes and all the time. And he, he was, was not going to make that work. Although Cece is like, Oh, well I know how to make it work. And so she just starts like kind of going on top of him and starting to kiss him and like, but not, but like playing with him. And you're just like, whoa, Cece, this is, this is kind of intense. And Schmidt really likes you. And you kind of know that. So you're really being a tease right now, especially because Kyle's coming. Like, what? I don't know. I thought that was a little much for Cece to do. Yeah, I feel like with Schmidt, he is kind of full of himself just circling back on that. But I think that his like people have led him to believe that. Like, I don't think it's all in his head. I think he's like, had some in his own words game. And that's kind of push his ego up so high that he is like asking for more like thinking of himself more but it comes from somewhere so I'm sure that line or like that look has worked before but he's never had Cece to like help him get a girl before but I love that he was just like no you're too pretty she's not gonna come over because you're too beautiful and you're right it was really weird with Cece because Every like vibe that she was giving off was I'm not acting like I actually want to be with you. I want to hook up with you. I wish I was um, not doing this just to make someone jealous kind of thing. And then when Kyle shows up, she doesn't like she kind of switches, but like it's more of that she's kind of dispassionate all the other time. And then when she's with Schmidt, she actually has like real emotions, it feels like. Yeah, no, 
I don't, I, I thought, I honestly thought after the 23rd episode that we weren't going to see Kyle again. And so I was really kind of, but she was, I, I did notice she was mentioning his name. Like, I think that's when she went to the party on, on, uh, I can't, I don't remember that. On actor. the boat. On the yeah. boat that Schmidt knew what it was. Neptune's Fall, I remember the boat. I don't remember the actor. Um, but it, she went to the boat because it was Kyle's connection, you know, but other than that, it's like you're hearing little bits about Kyle, but it's like, why is CC still going out with Kyle? I don't know, but they're together on Valentine's Day. And, you know, it didn't seem like the right time to try to cozy up to Schmidt, even if she thought she was helping him. So I definitely think it was, um, like you said, like real feelings and like things that she was kind of playing with and testing when she knew that, if you will, like she was like kind of safe that she had a boyfriend. No, I'm just playing with you, Schmidt. Like it's not real but it kind of was we know it was and we definitely know it was by the end of the episode <laughs> but um kind of before all of that pans out you know we we meet this Oliver character which we already kind of said you know at the bar he comes and checks on Jess choking on the cherry but they, they like lunch they're there they have nothing in common so Jess has found her her person that she needed she wants to have the one night sex with so this is gonna work wonderfully right guys <laughs> and like you know she tries to be herself which is great like he she does this like newscaster voice which those of us who've been watching kind of remember from episode eight bad in bed where she does that with paul but while paul leans into it oliver has no idea what she's doing and it's just like what and so that's why it's like perfect for her like you said and I guess she and him go off somewhere and then when they come back, she's ready to leave with him and she pulls out her box of condoms in the middle of the bar. I'm just like, just chill, chill because that I'm with Schmidt though. I am with Schmidt. That is the biggest box of condoms that I've ever seen. Why would you even need to purchase a box that big unless you're like running a health center and you pass them out? I have no idea. Like why do you need a hundred condoms, especially for a day? And, and even Schmidt's like, you know, maybe someone could go three times in a, in a night, depending on how much salmon he's had, but you're like, Schmidt, oh gosh, like what? Are, I don't know what that means, but it's ridiculous for Jess to have a hundred condoms. I just don't, I, there was, she even, Schmidt even says, are you going to like nail an army? <laughs> you know, like you have so many people you're going to like line up to like have sex with on your one night stand. And so she just, I did think it was funny too that she just like whipped this whole box out in the middle of the of the bar and it's like spilling out and you're just like Jess. And like you obviously spent money on this and you then proceed to ask Schmidt to basically drive you and Oliver because neither of you have a car. But then later when they're waiting for Schmidt to leave basically, he's like, "Well, how are you going to get home?" which I was sitting there saying, "Well, okay, are you going to wait for her?" one. And two, if if she was going to take a cab home, why couldn't she take a cab to his place? Or like, how did he get there? Like, there's so many questions about this. And Jess isn't like rich. We know that on a teacher's salary. But if you couldn't afford a cab home, you could probably afford a cab to his house too. And you could have saved yourself all this Schmidt stuff. I think, I think it, it, I'm with you. It didn't really make sense, especially to like today, we think about things like Uber and Lyft and the rideshare services and whatnot. And I don't think those were around in 2012 when, when this episode was happening. And so, uh, or if they were, it was still very, very new. So 
that problem today, I think, would have been solved. People would have just gotten their own rides to their own places to go. Um, they probably, Schmidt wouldn't even have driven in the first place, probably. Uh, but it, it was a little silly for Jess to carpool with Schmidt and then need her to drive him or need him to drive her to Oliver's. That I was like, Jess, I don't know what you're hoping is this romantic night on Valentine's Day that you need Schmidt to be your chauffeur to your date's house. Like, the logistics, the logistics weren't lining up. And Schmidt, like we said, stays. And, you know, his reasoning is that they're watching Planet of the Apes, which he didn't know they were going to watch right away. But you obviously got out of the car before he said something. So why did you even get out of the car, Schmidt? But, you know, Jess is like texting Cece to get her to move Schmidt out of the way, basically. And he gets a call and he doesn't leave right away. Like he gets the call from CC, agrees to leave, but then just sits there and waits for the guy to come back and doesn't leave until they have a disagreement between the word monkeys and apes for the show or for the movie. Well, and he actually only leaves because Jess is like, get out, get out, get out. And she finally like snaps and starts like pushing him out the door. And he's like, okay, fine, fine. You know, and you're just like everything from that moment then Jess thinks, oh, it's going to work out fine. But I, but then Oliver's girlfriend comes in and it slowly but surely turns into, to me, the one night stand from hell because she's like, even Jess is like, what does a girl got to do to get some like a one night stand around here? And you're just like, apparently a lot. Cause you, you picked a real winner with this lunch web creator. <laughs> like it's who's not, not even out. a, who's not even a web, web creator. creator. And like, if he's not a web creator, like, what is he doing other than eating tacos? Because this episode was literally an ad for tacos because he talks about eating three different types of tacos. He tells us all the toppings. And then later, his ex-girlfriend, Amy, is also eating tacos. And you're just like, I do I need to go get a taco to watch this episode? <laughs> I think I know somebody get the tacos, right? <laughs> But, you know, eventually they do, like, move on and Jess does not have this one-night stand because all of these factors that we're talking about and comes back to the loft. Well, all of the factors that we're talking about is not only Oliver's girlfriend walking in, but Schmidt goes out to outside, but then he can't leave because his car tires get taken and then he comes, like, he's, like, just hanging out outside, I guess, but then... Schmidt or Cece and Kyle break in and so then the girlfriend starts kissing Kyle and then Cece and the girlfriend get in a fight and Schmidt's like nope I'm still here too and I couldn't even believe though I will say through all of that I couldn't believe that Jess was still committed Jess got everybody out of the house and she was still committed and then only finally was she like oh okay like this isn't gonna work for me and even like you said she comes back to the loft then and everyone starts coming back to the loft after this like this evening of craziness and when she gets back you know Schmidt runs into her and at first is just like oh hey you didn't stick around like it didn't work out and she's like no you know we talked about like something quickly and then he made me call his mom in Hawaii for 15 minutes and then I came home and you're just like how we what did we where did we leave you Jess like how did that end up coming together for you I'm like felt so bad for her. She gave it such a good, like even more than a college try, I would say she was really committed to trying to have sex with Oliver and it just didn't work. So she goes to her second best option, Schmidt, because his talk basically like, he was really genuine, which I really appreciated, but he like kind of comes on to her and we're all like watching as the audience, like 
does Schmidt want to hook up with Jess? Like, is this actually an invitation? Which is obviously what's going through her head. And she goes and she's like practicing how to say hello to him. And in walks Nick home from his night with Julia. Yeah. And Nick totally catches her. And she's like, no, it's not what you think. It was what he thought. And she asked, again, with the box of 100 condoms, though, that she spills on the ground. And Nick just literally picks her up and carries her away, which, like, kind of a cute moment, though, right? Like, that was everyone else, everyone was like, wait, that's cute. Like, this is happening. You're totally holding Jess and, like, pulling her away. She's feeling twirly, Nick. You got to know what you're doing. Like, every guy in that apartment was fair game for her on that night. Because she was, she was in her twirly moments. So I thought that was, that was pretty silly. He definitely should have known what she was going through because she made it very clear that she was feeling twirly even like that morning. It wasn't like a new feeling like you're saying. But also it was just so great that he was just like, just leave the box, leave it. Just we'll deal with it later. And then we do see her in the morning, but there is no like scattered condoms all over the floor. But she calls Cece and is like filling her in on her night and was like, guess who I almost slept with? Schmidt. I couldn't – yeah, that that was – like how classic of a, of a little TV scene to have someone like calling someone in the next room and like not know it. But then Cece's reaction was like, oh, huh, that's funny. But like I couldn't tell – I don't know about you, Kritika, but I couldn't tell if she was feeling down or if she was like, oh, shit, like what was Jess wanting to do? Or like is Jess like Cece um, Schmidt or, you know, I couldn't really – tell her emotions at the end although like did she regret sleeping with schmidt was she like sad about jess potentially liking schmidt i couldn't tell yeah i think it's a probably a mixture of a lot of them like she looked like she was about to cry but i don't know if that's because of jess like you're saying or even maybe it's a combination of feeling like jess or like her regretting what she did because even when like cc and schmidt go to hook up she makes comments like you know i'm gonna tell people that like you know you did this like I wasn't a part of this like and it's really like uncomfortable to watch Cece continue to go down that path but like that also plays into it like does she feel bad about what she did or is she just feeling bad about what it means like that she's potentially hooked up with her best friend's roommate like is that going to make things awkward or is she like oh I shouldn't have done that I don't want to have done that with him yeah. I mean, I think that kind of brings us to Schmidtisms in a way, because our Schmidtisms were really a few Schmidt moments from the end of the episode when we're kind of seeing Schmidt at Oliver's house, which hilarious that he even went to Oliver's house, but he was at Schmidt at Oliver's house. And then the other one, just like what that, what that was at the end of the night and like chatting with Jess. So our favorite Schmidt critique is going to help, is going to help read some of these scenes and say some of these quintessential Schmidt lines. So the first one, Schmidt goes outside. He sees his car has no tires on it. And he says, Yudes. And he literally just yells it because even before that, he's just like, there are youths everywhere. And Jess says, youths, are you officer Krupke? Which is a reference from West side story, I guess. We'll give you more info in the show notes on that one. But he is very tied to this youth's word. And even later, Schmidt says, My tires were stolen by street youths. This is a moment from Schmidt that I think even back in 2012 when I was watching the show, as it was airing first time through, I'm just like, street youths. And so that that term and youths has just stuck around with me. It's so unique. So, so Schmidt. 
And honestly, I think this is one of the few very, very famous new girl lines that like people use all the time and may not even know that it's a reference to this show. Yeah, agreed. It's it's just so, so great. Youths. <laughs> so our second Schmidtism is like I was mentioning at the end of the episode where uh, Jess comes home and Jess and, and Schmidt run into each other. She's like, yeah, I'm back. And she's feeling maybe a little defeated, but then Schmidt is coming in and giving her a little pep talk, some words of advice. So Schmidt says, you don't want your first one night stand to be with some total stranger. You got to pick someone who, you know, who's not going to make a big deal out of the whole thing. Hmm. You have an urge, you act on it. And Whatever you do, leave immediately afterwards. God help you if you get sucked into a brunch. Thanks, Schmidt. Come here. You smell good. It's probably the oil of the Ylang Ylang tree. Schmidt. <laughs> you know Schmidt and his products always. So it's unsurprising that he smells good. But I think we really wanted to highlight this one in particular because normally a lot of Schmidt lines are also what gets him money in the douchebag jar. And I feel like this time, this is something that he truly is – being a good friend, really helpful to Jess. And, you know, I, I think what really was the best for me was the come here line when they hug. And it, it's just such an honest, good friend moment. It was. I really, I really like this moment too. Although I think as we kind of mentioned already, it's just wasn't maybe the right moment for Jess to hear it because she was already with her like sensors up, like ready to get together with someone. And also in a way that, Earlier on in this episode, Schmidt and Cece kind of like established that they're kind of the same and, and that they both have had many one night stands before. They were coaching Jess into having this one night stand. And I would say that Cece probably knows the same type of like one night stand rules, like someone familiar, but not someone you're going to get sucked into brunch with. And I think that honestly is what happened with Cece is that it's someone too familiar. It's someone that she liked maybe a little too much. And it's she is going to get sucked into brunch because she knows Jess and she's going to be in that apartment all the time. So it was definitely not going to be a one-night stand with Jess and – I'm sorry, with Schmidt and Cece. So that should be interesting to see what happens there. Even with Schmidt's own advice, I think it applies. Yeah, I think that that probably perfectly encapsulates what Cece was feeling that morning. Mixed emotions because of all this. Like I didn't really relate it back to this speech, but that's a really good comparison to what happened with them. I only just thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked about Schmidt being great, but he is not great throughout the whole episode. There is a point where he's sitting on the couch with Cece and he says that she has a naughty baby. She's being a naughty baby Indian. And the direct quote is, the pouty one, the naughty baby Indian. I just ate something spicy and now my lip is swollen. Mm -hmm. And it's said with an Indian accent, kind of like what I did, but not exactly. And... It is such a red flag. Like I cringed so hard watching Schmidt do this because he spends most of the episode being this really great guy and he has this line in it and Cece doesn't seem to be like shaken up by it at all. And this is the now at least second time Schmidt is making not only a comment about Cece being, well, no, I think it's at least the third time that C he's making a comment about Cece being Indian and brown and doing something that's it's just very racist, like calling it out to a point that it becomes more than just, oh, haha, a little comment about something. It's no, you've done this multiple times, Schmidt, and this is clearly something that you like about her is the fact that she's brown. And it's just. Oh, 
it's weird. It's weird to even see him say that kind of thing to her. Cause it's like, is that, do you think that that's cute? Do you think that that's going to make her like you more? Like, I don't know why he thinks that that's appealing. Yeah. I don't think it's really appealing either, <laughs> but I do think that like, I'm saying that Cece reacted okay to it. She didn't find it to be something like weird and uncomfortable. And maybe that's because like we've said through this episode, we feel like she's starting to have feelings for him and maybe she's excusing it. But at the same time, I guess we don't really get to see our full reaction because Kyle jumps in right then. And the thing that really got it for me was though, later in the episode, she says that, you know, he's going to get handsy and become racist. And we see him yell like, I love brown people. And she goes, Kyle, that's racist. And not that it isn't racist or it is, like we're not commenting on that particularly, but if that is what CC considers racist, I'm not sure how she doesn't consider this like accent to be racist because at least some of the previous transgressions that Schmitz have, like commenting on her skin color from being tan, okay, one, not a big deal. She says that he wants to add sandalwood for her brownness in the perfume, okay. But this one is like definitely over the line. Like it's one of the ones that we feel is just uncomfortable and also just a double standard that Cece's putting out there yeah well the accent like like you're saying it was just way too much it was one thing to maybe make the comment but comment with an accent is just too much and yeah I don't know why Cece didn't say anything to it you know like it, it I feel like she could have easily said yeah Schmidt that's not okay don't say that at the same time excusing it you know like letting her letting him know that don't do that in the future but like having feelings for him right or he she could have just not made a big deal about kyle about it and that's also writers like you chose to highlight one thing as something that was okay whereas because it was in a joke and another thing that's not okay just because it was part of their regular speech and they were high or whatever on shrooms like who gets to decide that that's okay and i love brown people is not when you're saying that cc's okay with schmidt using it yeah no it's just a weird moment and a weird thing that as you if you're either a Schmidt or a Kyle or a Cece in this situation, it's probably good to not be any of them. But if you are one, like think about kind of what is really being said in those types of moments. And that's why we really highlighted this one as our as a big not in 2020. Yeah, like it just kind of like didn't play well for us. And then again, later, like Julia's talking to a Chinese coworker and she says like, Confucius say you work for me and it's just like unnecessary the joke I don't think landed and you know Confucius being a Chinese philosopher it kind of came out kind of like a microaggression if not a little bit of racism. Well, and talking to someone who was whose name was Ming and that's all we knew about him he wasn't like anyone ever in the show but she was on the phone talking to Ming all night which we are okay presuming that Ming is Asian and Chinese but then still it is like you're saying a microaggression to kind of use some kind of Chinese Asian philosopher to say, do what I need you to do. You know, it's like, that's a little harsh. Yeah. And even on like presuming, we don't know whether Julia was presuming that he's Chinese or not. It, I think it did say like, get your Chinese head out of your Chinese ass or something like that, which is where we're getting that from. And probably where the like writing of Confucius is from, but we don't know if Julia knows Ming's ethnicity and like where he's from so all these are things are a little bit inappropriate for not in 2020 yeah and 
with that, we're going to transition to our pop culture. Um, there were a lot of pop culture references in this episode, uh, but Critique and I thought it would be fun if we focused focused on Schmidt's Desert Island books, that he listed out a few different things, which are summer books, summer scripts um, of things he would bring to a desert island. So the first was Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And he refers to Outliers in that he's like, oh, I've got my 10,000 hours, like Outliers, you should read it. But in Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell examines the factors that contribute to high levels of success. Uh, and throughout the book, he repeatedly mentions the 10,000 hour rule, claiming to achieve expertise in any skull. Uh, you have to be practicing it in a correct way for 10,000 hours. Some of the research around that was found to be not applicable in the way that Gladwell has used it, but still Gladwell has made this 10,000 hour rule very famous. And that's what Schmidt is referencing in there for that. Yeah. I've actually heard the rule, but I didn't know where it came from. So that's kind of cool to know that Schmidt knows this too, for one, because I would not expect this to be on Schmidt's list. Yeah. And he, he seems well-read given this list, but yeah. Yeah. And one that like kind of didn't surprise me after looking into it was The Prince of Machiavelli. It's one of his famous works, and it's actually an instruction guide for new princes and royals. So <laughs> you can see how Schmidt might be interested in this, but it's kind of innovative and in for what it is because it's written in vernacular Italian versus Latin, which was kind of the publication language of choice at the time. And the writing is from a political writing genre that basically puts encompasses encyclopedic knowledge into one book. So it seems like a very hefty read, especially being like an instruction guide. But at the same time, knowing that it's for royalty, I would have put a past Schmidt to read it. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of Machiavelli before, but I didn't know what this the prince was. And as soon as Critica said, it's an instruction guide for princes and royals, I'm just like eye rolling because I'm just like, oh, Schmidt. Oh, gosh. So uh, the other book he, he referenced, which is actually not quite a book, um, is Freak by John Leguizamo. Um, this is actually his... It's kind of an autobiography, Freak specifically is, but he has, John Logazamo, his smash hit is a critically acclaimed one-man shows were captured in four different texts. So they're actually like one-man plays, if you will. So he had Mambo Mouth, which covers, you know, seven different like Latino characters that he did in a one-man show. Then his second was Spicorama, uh, which is 24 hours in the life of one dysfunctional family. Then Freak was the third installation, and that was actually his Broadway debut and was kind of his own coming-of-age story. The full title is the Demi-Semi-Quasi-Pseudo-Autobiography that uh, actually got critical and commercial success, won an Emmy, and was actually shown on TV. And then Sexaholics was the fourth uh, one-man show that Leguziamo did, and this is um, Sexaholic, a love story, and it was based on his sold-out national tour of his live show. So I don't. It's interesting that Schmidt specifically listed Freak um, the, than all of them, but that one it does seem was the one that was like most known and and the one that kind of got the most awards. So it was just really about his John Logaziamo's life and in a comedic way. That category of autobiography is a mouthful, but um, I think it's fair that Schmidt is kind of breaking the normal pattern of books because his fourth pick was any scripts from the first season of Vampire Diaries, which um, if you don't know, is a show that came out on the CW, I believe it aired around the 2008 timeframe. And 
in the like late 2000s there, it was an amazing show that I loved. So I didn't have to do any research into this show because I'm actually actively rewatching it right now. And it's amazing and is a show about two vampire brothers and a human girl. And every season is just very different. And the first season is definitely kept me at the edge of my seat when I watched it live. So I understand Schmidt's fascination with it. That's great. I have never seen Vampire Diaries. So I guess with Schmidt's recommendation and your recommendation, I better get on it. Better better start seeing what the show's about so I can bring its scripts to my desert island, I guess. Um, but then the last that was kind of mentioned, and, and also I was kind of surprised Schmidt kind of kept going on and on listing a bunch of things. I always thought there was a rule like you can bring three things or something or one thing. But Schmidt goes on to mention, you know, a little phantom tea and Cece <laughs> fills us in that that means the phantom toll booth. And in Schmidt's like, yeah, of course you like it. That's you're a human being, which I actually hadn't heard of the Phantom Toll Booth, or at least I thought I didn't. But then looking it up, there's almost been four million copies sold. It's been out um, for fi- over 50, almost fifty years since the original publication. Uh, many people have have like learned and and read the story of Milo to the lands beyond is the theme in this book. So essentially, really short synopsis is like a toll booth appears in Milo's room. He drives through it because he's bored and he got he has nothing better to do. But on the other side, he visits the island of conclusions where you have to jump to get there. He learns about time from a ticking watchdog named Talk. He embarks on a quest to rescue rhyme and reason. So somewhere along the way, Milo realizes life is far from dull. So I actually, while I haven't read this book or knew it was called The Phantom Tollbooth, I think I've heard people refer to like the island of conclusions and jump to it and and that kind of concept. So I actually think I want to like get it and order it and like see what this book is about because I don't think it's very long either. It's kind of intended for a young audience. Um, but yeah, it seemed it seemed really fun or like a really good spin on language in a way. Yeah, jumping to conclusions. That is amazing. To imagine this and bring it into life is like a very cool concept. This whole, just the summary you just read out, Kelly, is very intriguing, even if it is aimed at a younger audience. Right. So, I mean, I, I actually think Schmidt has a lot of depth with these with these options and has has uh, you, these wouldn't be the ones that I would think Schmidt would pick for all of them. You know, he, he kind of covers all the grounds like there's the business book, there's a historical book, you know, pop culture book, you know, a TV show and this like fun language thing. So I don't know. I just, I, I was impressed by, by Schmidt's collection here. Uh, Kritika, is there a book that you would bring to a desert island if you, if you had to go? Maybe not 10 of them, but like just one? <laughs> so that's a really good question. Um, for anyone who doesn't know this about me already, I used to be a very avid reader, especially as a kid. Um, it was something that you always found me with a book in hand. And so it's extremely hard for me to pick one, actually. I think if I'm going to be the basic millennial, I'd probably say one of the Harry Potter books because it's just a good read pretty much all the time. But I don't know that I have one particular one that I probably would pick because there's so many good books out there. I can tell you that it would definitely be a fiction book because that's what I tend to gravitate towards versus – like so I would be more in the Phantom Tollbooth rather than like Machiavelli. I think for me, I I really have liked and one of my favorite books that I've kind of always come back to is um A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. 
I really just, it's kind of, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but for me, it just catalogs the life of this girl from when she's 11 to when she's like in her twenties or early twenties and what life was like for her all through that time. And I just love that kind of story where we get to see character growth and see someone go through life and all the events that they have, which maybe some might find boring, but I find so intriguing. And I just like love learning about people and people's experiences. So that would be a book I think I would take with me, but hopefully never have to experience a desert island where we'd have to bring only one book. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. I've definitely heard you talk about that book before and you have a very clear favorite book slash like book you would need to bring. So that's pretty nice. So uh, in this episode as well, we actually had a few different guest stars, um, but we're going to focus on two. So the first is Clark Duke, who plays Cliff, uh, the unpaid intern in Julia's office. He has been um, in a bunch of TV, a bunch of movies. He's, I mean, he's probably like super successful, honestly. He's been in so many things. and And I actually feel a little embarrassed that, I've seen so many of the things that he's been in and never actually knew his name. And I'm like, oh, I need to maybe know who I like in these shows a little bit more. Um, but in some TV, he's been in uh, the show Greek. He was in later seasons of The Office. He was in Veronica Mars. He was a voice, a voice in Robot Chicken. Or voices, multiple. They have lots of little things there, but he's done multiple voices in Robot Chicken. And he's also been in I'm Dying Up Here. He also was in movies like Hot Tub Time Machine, one and two, Kick-Ass, one and two, The Croods, and then the new The Croods movie uh, launching, uh, I think this year, pretty soon. And he also did this movie, Arkansas, which he acted and directed in. And then he, it's a movie based on like 70s influenced crime noir in Arkansas, which he's originally from. So I thought that was really interesting. I mean, it's like just came out this year. I actually think I want to go see it. It has Liam Hensworth in it, which I'm like, that's exciting. And it just could really add depth to Clark Duke and, and kind of what he can, can present and, and like what he can direct and act in. So I think that would be really exciting that he's kind of branching out. That movie actually sounds really interesting. I would definitely want to check that out too. For me, Greek is the show that he immediately popped up on. And he kind of plays a similar-ish character on Greek, at least at the beginning. And it was just so great because Greek's a show that's been off the air for a long time. And I actually haven't really thought about that show in a while. And so seeing him pop up on my screen because I didn't remember he was in this episode was really great. I think it's also really funny that like you were saying some of the stuff that Clark Duke has done has been coming out this year because the other guest actor that we're touching on, Ryan Quanton, also has like a movie 2067 releasing October 2020. So right now, basically. Um, And he's an actor that you probably know from TV shows like True Blood and Sacred Lies and The Oath and then movies like Dead Silence. And one really interesting fact that I thought was on True Blood, it's it's set in Louisiana, and so he actually has a southern accent on the show, but he is Australian. And from that show, the very, very little I've watched of it, and this show, I would never have known that. He plays his accents very well. That's honestly one of my favorite moments is to get so in- immersed in a show and see someone talk a certain way and not know them from anything else and then see like an after the show like interview with that person and be like, whoa, who, who are you? What voice is that? Go back to what I know you of. And which 
of course it's what I know is so limited, but I just love, I love actually when that, when actors can be so good in their accents that you never even think something sounds off and something sounds wrong with their accent and how they're making it sound. So that's really, that's really interesting. Yeah. And I think Kelly and I probably appreciate the accents even more because if you have been listening to us this whole time, you know that we're not great with accents. So when these actors do it so flawlessly that we have no idea, it is amazing to watch. Oh, definitely. Definitely. It is, it is a true skill. Speaking of acting and, you know, that entire entertainment industry, one of the fun facts that we actually found out about this episode is that the company that produces New Girl, which is called Chernin Entertainment, is actually the same one that produced the Planet of the Apes reboots. So the rise of the Planet of the Apes is what Schmidt, Jess, and Oliver were watching in this episode. And it was just kind of cool to see that they're produced by the same company, which is something I would have never known. Yeah. No, I think that's that's like it makes a lot of sense to me because they probably have the rights to show a movie that their entertainment company owns or at least have more access to it um the new girl the new girl staff probably have more access to it to try to put that on the tv on the tv you know like that to me is always like a unique situation with the copyright and what's allowed and whatnot the other fun fact that we had was something that we didn't actually know ourselves. Um, Like I said, I've not watched a lot of True Blood and Kelly hasn't really seen the show either. But what's kind of interesting is although, you know, Ryan Quantin, the guest actor we covered just now, who plays Oliver and Lizzie Kaplan, who plays Julia, were both guest stars in this episode. They didn't do any scenes together, but in True Blood, they're actually both playing characters that are in a relationship. So we found that was kind of a cool fact, especially with True Blood being such a big show for Ryan Quantin. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of crazy. It's weird. It's weird to see those kinds of connections. And I'm sure we're like most people where when you see people in certain shows, you try to make like a story connection to them to other shows, you know, I don't know. Is that just me who does that? Like to pretend that it's all one big story and one big character? I mean, I don't know that I would go that far, but I do remember um, a couple episodes ago when we last saw Kyle getting very excited that Stephen Amell and Katie Cassidy were both on New Girl and were both such main characters on Arrow. So I definitely, it is always so nice because you never know which show you see more of and then go back and watch them in other things where you didn't realize because it was earlier in their career. Yeah, no, that's really awesome. I guess that's in a way, this is like the second time this has happened. So that's cool. So getting into our ratings and just kind of kind of wrapping up, IMDb gave this a 7.9 out of 10. And this also had a viewership of 6.4 million, 6.4 for 7 million. Um, and it's actually the lowest so far, so far. Uh, sadly, this was a really fun episode. It was kind of a cringy episode at moments, but a really fun comedic episode. And so that I actually gave it, I guess on par with IMDb, I gave it an eight out of 10. Yeah. Same for me. I really like this episode. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the best one we've seen so far, but it was a very good episode and I was able to really like live in it, which is kind of a lot of my criteria. But my favorite character in this episode was Schmidt because despite his not in 2020 moment, I really loved how he was there for Jess and how good of a friend he was really being. Yeah, Schmidt was great. Schmidt was great. But my favorite was Jess. I think it's just that relatability and knowing that Jess was so committed to just being outside herself, being different and trying to explore other things and and go on this one night stand and make her Valentine's Day fun for her. So I really, I really appreciated Jess in this episode. And that wraps up 
everything but the spoilers on this episode. So we really appreciate you taking the time to listen to our podcast so far, and we'd love to know what you enjoyed or what you found interesting. So please give us a rating or leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this today. We also appreciate any feedback you have, so feel free to shoot us an email at whosthatgirlpod at gmail.com or reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter at whosthatgirlpod, and we really do read everything you guys send over. So if you don't want to hear about any future storylines, you have five seconds to pause. But for the rest of this year, we are actually going to be releasing episodes every other week. So if you decide to pause, we'll chat again in two weeks for episode 14. So our endgame couples, first we have Jess and Nick. And really in this episode, we talked a lot about Nick, you know, being a really good boyfriend for Julia Jess trying to get her one night stand, being semi-interested in Schmidt for a second, but that end scene where Nick stops Jess from trying to hook up with Schmidt and physically carries her out of the way, it was a lot. It was, it was, it was a good time. I I read too much into that. And so I really wanted to give it a five. Ritika was like, Kelly, you're reading way too much into that. They're not gonna get together after this episode, and you're seeing things you don't want to see. So she was gonna give it a three. We compromised, gave it a four out of 10 for them. They're probably not getting together next episode. But I see where you're coming from. Like I see that they're getting there. So it four out of 10 seems perfect for this just because Nick and Julia seem still good. But Schmidt and Cece. So obviously we've talked about the bar scene where the whole like Naughty Baby Indian came up in the first place and Cece is like almost kissing Schmidt. But they also end up hooking up in this episode, which is amazing. And we also know that they both know and love the book Phantom Tollbooth, which has already made its way onto our reading list. So this was a really good episode for them. Yeah, I think that Phantom Tollbooth thing too, It's it, that to me talks more to their long-term ability to be with each other. Because, you know, yes, they actually hooked up in this episode, but the phantom toll booth and like the way that they're connecting with each other kind of shows how it's laying the groundwork for like long-term I think. So together we gave it a rating of a nine out of 10, which some of you might think, wait, nine out of 10, they hooked up in this episode. But the reason we're giving it a nine is because they don't actually, they're not actually in a point where they're like dating. They're hooking up. They're having these feelings for each other, but they're not like ready to go date and they're not going to be dating next episode. And they're not talking about dating either. Like that's not the conversation we saw. It was very much just like this is a one-time thing. So it is really high because we can see it happening. And to Kelly's point with Van Tolbooth, that is definitely a reason why we rated it even higher. But it's not like a long-term thing yet. And lastly, with the douchebag tracker, the last thing we track every single episode, um, As you guys know, Schmidt's douchebag is a 10 usually whenever it's really high and then being a genuine guy is down at a zero. And while he had a couple moments where he had said some things, he was really looking out for Jess, like we said, and really why he was my favorite character. So we ranked him a two out of 10 for this because he really was being very genuine. And, you know, like the scene outside that we used as the Schmidtism this week, everything about it was just Schmidt being really open and a good friend. Yeah, agreed. It was Schmidt was really outside himself this episode, and it was really great. It was nice to see him take a little bit of a different stance. So, 
that's really all we got for our spoilers this time. Critique and I want to say thank you again for listening to this episode of Who's That Girl? Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. So again, please give us ratings. Leave us comments in Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this. Um, send us an email, whosthatgirlpod at gmail.com. Also reach out to us on social media, Twitter, Instagram at whosthatgirlpod. And like Kritika said, we'll see you back in two weeks for the next episode. Thank you. Thanks.